Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, I am Rachel Woody, and I'm here with Steve Dorner, and we're at Christam Vineyards, Mm -hmm. and it is February 5th, 2015. And our first question for you is, why wine? Uh, Boy, you start right off with the hard questions, don't you? Um, Most people, I think, in our industry have had some aha moment, you know, with uh, wine that um, they just, it was just an enlightened, you know, moment for them. I kind of came at it differently. I didn't, um, I grew up with wine at the table, but it was never fine wine. It was just a jug on the sideboard that, you know, it was usually a gallon jug and it took a week to get through it. So it just got left out and opened and probably had enough preservatives that it didn't really matter. And occasionally I would partake in it just because my parents would now and then. Um, my mother's side of the family was was uh, French by heritage. You know, she was born in San Francisco, but her first language was French. So that side of the family always just had wine around, and they made some during Prohibition, I hear, and stuff like that. So I had been just generally exposed to wine. Um, but I went to uh, UC Davis um, originally as pre-med, probably. I studied biochemistry, and I stick with biochemistry the whole time. But as I, when I was a senior, um, at school, uh, planning on going back for another quarter because I didn't know what I was going to do. I started thinking I better start figuring this out and um, just had a curiosity about wine because again, Davis had this big enology program. So again, I was sort of in, um, exposed to it in a sort of secondary way, you know, just hearing about the, what a great international wine program we had and stuff. So I asked one of my professors if um, wineries ever hired biochemists because I was thinking, what am I going to do with this degree, you know? And uh, he said, not to my knowledge, you know, we have this great enology program and we graduate 70 or 80 enologists every year and that's where they all come from. And so, you know, that would end of story and I was going to go to Europe that summer. And um, in about a month later, the same professor that I'd asked about gets a letter from a winery in California who was specifically requesting either biochemist or microbiologist. So then I felt obligated to go apply for this job, right? And um, so I still didn't know what I was getting into, and I ended up getting that job and uh, really not knowing what I was doing. But uh, the guy that I worked for was pretty desperate for someone. He even wanted me to start working before I graduated. Um, wow. And I was luckily smart enough, I think, to say, no, I'm, I can't do that. I got um, It was only a month away, and so I worked for him for a couple weekends. And then, and then uh, right out after I graduated, I was thrown straight into it. And... Um, so that was back in 1978, you know. Um, and so I struggled with it, to be honest. Um, I thought it was pretty cool work, but I, I wasn't, um, like so many of my peers, I think, totally enamored with wine yet. Um, I became that way, but it wasn't as easy as I thought it would be at first. It was a lot of work. I was uh, by myself in this little winery, didn't know what I was doing. and. Quite frankly, it was it was hard for me for the first couple vintages, I'd say, especially the first one I got into a, anyway, I'm digressing, but um, I was in a hospital for a month with a car accident and, and oh. over, over um, worked and just, and just 
depressed. I was not, not having fun that first vintage. Um, but after I kind of got over the, uh, the initial commitment that I'd made and felt like I could leave if I had to because I'd committed to work for him for a couple of years and I didn't really get anything for the commitment other than, you know, you can leave after two years, which wasn't much. But um, anyway, it turned out to be a great place to be working. But it took me a while to kind of figure out that I really liked this. And I think uh, the real moment came... Um, or it wasn't really a moment, but um, my first trip to Burgundy, you know, was in 1981. And that probably is what turned the corner in a general sense. I mean, I had gradually become more and more appreciative of what I was doing and what this industry entailed and, and what wine was in the, in the world of history and food and health and everything else that it's involved with. Um, but I didn't really get the sense of sort of the um, role that it played on a world scene until I'd gotten there where it's such a respectable position and like when you're in Burgundy everything revolves around the wine you know where here it was just a kind of an oddity you know people sort of you do what you know <laughs> um, and again we were we were some we were making Pinot Noir at the time and and that was pretty unusual out here and um, or in the west coast I should say back then there was there certainly was people doing it but it wasn't nearly the the grape that it's become you know so why wine I don't know I just fell into it and uh, got lucky I guess mm -hmm. but now you know I, I love it but it's uh, it, I think that original experience has helped keep me a little bit more balanced because I'm not you know, I like doing lots of other things, and I, I, I think ph philosophically I, I try to keep it in perspective that it's just wine, and yes, it's a wonderful thing and a good beverage and a great career, but we're not, we're not, you know, um, he, you know, we're not saving lives and we're, we're not solving the world's problems or anything else. We're, we're just making wine. So I think, unfortunately, uh, a lot of a lot of winemakers tend to take themselves so seriously that they think they're really creating something special and, and I always feel like I'm just a little bit of a steward of the land rather than a creator, you know. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. Good answer. <laughs> well, long answer. I probably answered some of your other questions at the same time. But. No, that's great. It's, I always love starting with why wine because it tends to open people up and it also shows to me where your passions lay. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's very insightful. That's a good answer. Good. Um, Quick question, you had mentioned your family and how your mother was French and growing up with wine at the, mm -hmm. the family table. Are you by any chance related to the Dorners down in Roseburg? Um, I, not, I haven't done a lot of research in that regard, but um, the little bit I know I would say not, although the name is not that common. So maybe way um, back when, perhaps, I mean, he came here, uh, I think, Adam Dorner back in the 1850s or something. Mm -hmm. My father, um, which is the Dorner side of the family, um, was from Minnesota and he moved out to California uh, during World War II. Um, okay. So not until 1942 or something like that. Um, so, and I don't know where Adam Dorner came from, <laughs> the one that came to Oregon. But it's spelled the same way and um, there's that natural assumption, but certainly I don't know them. They don't know me other than maybe we've heard of each other's names, right. you know. Um, so I don't, I don't really know the answer to that question. Um, I would assume somewhere way back when they, they were, <laughs> right. but my father had been here for lots of generations and we can't really trace his roots back to, back to Europe at all. It was my mother's side who was just sort of uh, first generation here, so. So what brought you back up to Oregon? 
Well, I'm, I'm not from here originally, oh, but but what brought um, you to Oregon? You know, after I'd worked uh, at that job for about 14 years, uh, it was time for me to look for something else, and um, I, it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. Again, I was a little bit because I didn't really choose that career. I mm -hmm. I liked it, but I was I a lot of things were options, and I was sort of thinking what you know, trying to define what it was that I liked about what I was doing versus what I could be doing, maybe. Um, and I, I realized that um, through that little thought process that I really liked uh, the diversity of working for a small uh, winery because you wear a lot of different hats. And mm -hmm. I prefer being a little bit of an electrician and a plumber and a floor scrubber and getting to dress up like a penguin and go to fancy <laughs> events. I mean, you, it runs the whole gamut, mm -hmm. gamut of sort of skill sets, you know, and, and I, I like to dabble in a lot of different things. Um, and I thought, so I, I wanted to make Pinot Noir because that's what I'd spent the last 14 years trying to figure out. Uh, I wanted to work for a small company. Um, and, and, I, and I wanted, to, you know, I thought building a brand was sort of a fun part of the business and stuff too. So I, I was hoping to get in a sort of a younger company if possible. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know that um, I had been to Oregon for the, uh, I had been up to the uh, Steamboat Conference, I think about 1985 or something I went to. So I'd been up here a little bit, but I really didn't know much about Oregon, to be honest. Um, but word got out anyway that um, I was looking to leave my other job and the new owner of this property, Paul Gary, who bought it in 1992, uh, started seeking me out. And um, I, I was interested enough that I came up and met him and interviewed here on, on the porch up here. And this place was um, already in existence, but it was very, very um, undeveloped, if you will. There were vines around here, but it was in pretty disrepair. I mean, we walked through some of the old winery up there, you know, mm -hmm. as we came down here. but. Anyway, uh, it wasn't particularly glamorous or anything, but in a lot of ways it fit sort of what I was looking for. It was, Paul seemed like a great guy and uh, it was all an adventure. And, and I kind of struggled over that um, decision for a while, you know, but it, it was, once I got here, it was like, why did I take so long to figure <laughs> it out? I mean, I just felt like I fit in so perfectly with Oregon right off the bat that um, I, I uh, even though it didn't, seemed like it was a choice that I would have thought I was going to take if I looked back. It was it was the right choice from, from the beginning. I just didn't know it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So one of the taglines on the website that I love is it's an engineer, a biochemist, and a farmer. Yeah. What is it like working in that kind of dynamic or that partnership? Well, it was great, really, because we all, we all were... Uh, had been from different different sort of focuses, although Mark the farmer, he's still farming, you know. Um, and, and there's there's some biochemistry involved in, in uh, winemaking. I mean, I, again, I was originally hired because I had a biochemistry degree, but because I also didn't have an enology degree. That was an intention on my previous boss because he didn't want to um, untrained me. Um, he was trying to make wine a very old world style and so I I've still have sort of uh, used that as, as my guidepost is you know they've been making wine for somewhere between six and ten thousand years and mm -hmm. it's, it's like you know um, inoculations aren't some or native yeast is not something new that's that's what it's been done all along it's just somewhat retro to be doing it today although more and more people do it all the time now but that type of thing um, 
was was something that he would have had to sort of talk me out of if I had been sort of a you know professionally trained at Davis and all just you know sanitize filter inoculate you know make the wires as consistently as possible and stuff mm -hmm. I'm sort of diverging from your question but um, there is I, I guess one of the reasons that I was hired originally was that um, there was a brand new test that had just come out in the lab that um, was using enzymatic a spectrophotometer to do enzymatic analysis for particularly malic acid. And so mm -hmm. even though the, the first company I worked for was very tiny, he was committed to doing this. He had a consultant that said, you really got to get on this, uh, this stuff. And so I was hired sort of to run this test that was kind of brand new. And, um, you know, so it was mostly just a lab, lab work that he hired me for, even though it entailed everything because I was really the only employee there. Um, mm -hmm. But um, so that served me well just to get into that particular job. But but yeah, the dynamic was was great. I don't I don't feel like our previous um, sort of training was was um, interfered at all. It was mostly just about the personalities and how we worked well together. And, and Paul was great, great guy to work for. And, and Mark was great guy we're both still here and it's his son now that's Paul's son Tom who's the, the Tom of Christum who's now mm -hmm. taken over for his dad but you know otherwise we're it's it's been sort of a continuous um, group of people who are, are here with some people who have come and gone maybe but the core people are still around so um, yeah it was I don't think those sort of diverse um, backgrounds had much to do with it. I mean Paul was the only one that had really um, you know, made engineering his career. I was just out of college, so even though my, my training was biochemistry, I'd never worked as a biochemist, so mm -hmm. I couldn't say that uh, any sort of general science education would have been the same. So this may not be in your wheelhouse, but uh, Christoma is life certified, mm -hmm. so low input viticulture mm -hmm. immunology. How has that played a part as an important part of grape growing in the winemaking process? Well, you know what, um, this could potentially open a whole can of worms about the whole sustainability and different different viewpoints of that, and I don't want to go too down, far down that track because I've probably already been a bit more outspoken about some of it than I should have been. But um, what I like about the, the live program in particular is it is more about sustainability, and it tries to look, I think, at the big picture, not at the, at the you know, when your fence line stops is where you stop worrying about it, you know. so. Right. Um, you know, so in, in the winery in particular, I mean, a lot of people have um, talked a lot about uh, the biodynamics and organic and, and live in the vineyard, which makes a lot of sense, you know, to uh, try to be as gentle to the, the grapes that you are. But um, taking it into the winery as well, I think, has made us aware um, with the live program, you know, the first year it was mostly about setting a baseline for what are you doing and then how can you improve upon it and how can you improve upon it for sort of the big picture. Like, you know, we used to uh, have styrofoam shippers. We don't use those anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to have massive glass bottles, which we still have a few that are heavier than average, but we've really tried to, uh, and sourcing them locally. Um, mm -hmm changing these light bulbs to fluorescency and just little things. Um, so constantly trying to see how we can uh, reduce our footprint in general. So it's not just about the product, it's about um, you know, electricity use and, and packaging use and um, all, all aspects of it. So I, I like that about uh, the live program because it sort of rewards good behavior and, and, and 
scolds bad behavior, but it doesn't say outright, well, with some few exceptions that, you know, if you do this, you're, you can't do anything else because they're looking at the total impact that you're making. And I think, I think that's a very smart way to do it, you know. So, um, and that, you know, we've always tried to be good stewards before any of these programs were around. But um, it's, it's good to have somebody kind of looking over your shoulder just to remind you that always, always strive to do better, you know. Mm -hmm. But in the winemaking, it, it's not too hard. I mean, we use some sulfur and stuff, but it's, uh, again, I look at that as being pretty traditional and yeast produce a little bit of it anyway, so it's not like we're, um, we're doing anything, I think, that's, that's drastic in that regard. Mm -hmm. So, for a broader question here, in your time in Oregon, what do you think Oregon wine is known for, but specifically this region, well, um, again, that's another debatable question about regional differences. You know, all these new AVAs have come about in the last decade, and um, I was one of the ones who was trying to not get in the way, but I wasn't jumping on the bandwagon either because I just felt, and I still sort of feel, that it's, it's a bit early. Um, mm -hmm. um, we, I, I still have trouble being able to identify where a wine is from. Now, if it's rigged a little bit and you sort of know you got some choices, I could stab at what region they're from, but there seems like there's so many other variables on top of just our little local AVA, if you will, that has, um, that influences more than the AVA does. I mean, like you say, what's warmer, Dundee Hills or Yola Emmy Hills as well. What elevation are you talking about? Because if you're low here and high there, we're warmer. If you're low there, high here, they're warmer. So okay. it's not an AVA thing. It's it's a um, it's it's another another variable. You know, um, the the not the pro. I don't want to say it's a problem with our AVAs because I don't want more restrictions on it. But in comparison to say Burgundy, where I think that's probably the height of where the the AVA sort of makes sense. So many of their practices are regulated, you know, when you can start picking, how many buds you can leave, how much crop mm -hmm. you can have, um, you know, the density of the vines, and on and on and on, that it does sort of take a lot of the other variables away. Um, and it's a pretty relative, even slope, you know, it's about 20 miles of east-facing gradual slopes. And so you've, you've taken, and even the elevation-wise, I think we have almost as much elevation change just in our own property here as they do in all Burgundy, practically. It's, it's not that much over there. Mm -hmm. um, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but if you include not our property, we have a lot more variability there. And so anyway, um, I think to get back to what, you know, the Willamette Valley Pinot Noirs are generally like, I think, you know, we were blessed with um, just the core of, of fruitiness, you know, um, and I think it's, um, it's ripe fruit versus, I, ha I hate to bash my former state of California, but they, they tend to be almost, um, almost overripe sometimes. And again, that's a, a generalization, especially today. There's a lot of people who are finding cooler climates and are paying a lot more attention to try to make the wines so less of that sort of jammy side of things. But even back when we started, I think that was one of the things that was really nice about Oregon is, is just is just pure fruit that was ripe and not sort of on the, on the preserve side of ripe, you know. Um, I mean, we've, uh, those of you who have been in Oregon for any length of time have, you know, um, 
you know, witnessed all the beautiful other fruits that we have. I mean, the local strawberries outside of here, nobody's heard of because they don't store very well and you have to eat them within a couple days of being picked because they're so fragile, but they're delicious. And so, um, and blueberries and on and on and on. Cherry, you know, Salem's known for cherries and all kinds of things. And so the, the grapes get the same sort of nice background of fruit. And then, you know, being in a, um, again, relatively cooler climate, although it's hard to say after the decade of the 2000s. Um, you know, it, it, the wines tended to hold their acidity better, I think, than, than they would naturally, um, uh, than they would have back in California. All that being said, you can manipulate acid, you know, you can, you can do some things to mitigate that, so it, it's not always, um, it doesn't mean that those places can't make great wines, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, our, but again, if you um, twisted my arm and I had to say how generally, you know, what's unique about our area is um, um, there's, there's probably more contradictions than there are generalities, but um, I think that we're influenced quite a bit by the, the winds that we get from the Van Duzer Corridor, which also affects the rest of the valley, but it sort of hits the backside of these hills pretty directly, um, which tends to... Um, you know, slow down ripening just slightly um, because the vines have to struggle just a bit to do that. But we're a little bit in the shadow. We're on the east side of those hills, so it doesn't affect us quite as much. So again, it just depends kind of where you are in that in that sense. But I'd say our our fruit just has a, a bit of a um, you know slightly rustic character. I don't know um, in comparison to sort of straight straightforward fruitiness, but. Um, I'm, I'm the one who's hard-pressed to find those generalities, so it's a little bit hard for me to, to answer that question, because uh, those are, in theory, I would, I would believe them, but if, um, if you gave me a, three wines blind, and they're all from the same place, or all from the different places, I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't get any of them right, you know? <laughs> so, but there's other people who I respect a lot who claim that they can, so maybe it's real. All right. Well, that concludes my portion oh, of the interview quick. with you. Okay. Yes, you're very efficient. Camille does have a few questions, um, specifically, I think, more winemaking. And, okay. And then if there's anything, of course, that we forgot to cover, um, there's a I don't know time what at you the want end. To cover, so. yeah. <laughs> One of the things that um, you didn't cover that I thought you would just automatically was just the sort of the community in Oregon. You know, I think that is a really powerful story myself because it started with the founding fathers but you know they got together and helped each other out a lot and it's continued for uh, it's still continuing to this day but one of the things that made me feel like I fit in right away was the outpouring of people around us who wished us well and mm -hmm. went out of their way to make sure that we were successful and I didn't expect that at all it was nobody told me when I came here that oh you're gonna love it because everybody's helpful they just were helpful and didn't brag about it it was just their nature and all these events that we put on every year as a community is sort of testimony to that you know the um, first steamboat and and then IPNC and then OPC and you know now we've got all these little AVAs trying to work independently but yet they were all sort of formed together as a group um, and and so far I mean my, one of the reasons I wasn't a big fan of it it was sort of the beginning of the end of the sort of community or thought I, or I thought it might be you know whenever you draw a line in the sand you're excluding some people and including others but so far well, I think we've tried very hard to not let that happen and so I think that's a really 
important part of the Oregon story. I mean, the, the, the wines are great, but the community that we make them in is what I love about it. More, even, well, it's hard to say more than the wines because I love the wines, but um, it's just wine and, and you can't always get the community everywhere. So I think that's something that uh, ought to be one of, the, one of your questions. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. That. Um, my name is Camille Weber, um, and I have a few questions for you, Steve. Okay. Um, the first one being, um, I read an interview online from the Northwest Wines, and they described winemaking as a balance between being a scientist and a chef. And that really resonated with me, especially when Rachel started talking about, um, or when you and Rachel discussed uh, your hands-off Mm -hmm. um, approach to winemaking. So I kind of want to hear a little bit more of that. Um, what do you think is the most important um, reason why you choose to be a little bit more hands-on? Well, I guess it's partly the variety that I ended up, again, just falling into making. Um, I think it responds really well to being left alone. Pinot Noir is a very finicky variety and it's a fragile variety. It's thin-skinned. If anything can happen to Pinot Noir, it will. And so moving it around a lot or processing a lot um, tends to just take something away. Um, you know, uh, to Davis's credit, back then when I was a student there and, and all the enologists that they were putting out, they probably elevated the general quality wines around the world, perhaps. But by doing so, they, they were trying to standardize that you got rid of a lot of the bad wines, but you also got rid of some of the great wines because you've taken a little bit of the essence of the wine out by over-processing it. You know, again, back when I was making wine, Cabernet was a totally different beast. You know, it, it needs a little oxidation. It needs some roughing up, some handling. Um, most people in California, that's what their focus was, was, was on Cabernet. And so uh, a lot of people who tried to make Pinot Noir were trying to make it in a sort of general red wine recipe, you know, rack it every few months. and um, pump it over and you know oxidize it uh, just to just to make it palatable when it's ready to go to the market and and you know we realized right away that that Pinot Noir doesn't taste very good when you treat it that way so um, I think that was part of it and then again kind of focusing on how have they done it historically it made me sort of want to do um, do less just because that's how the how traditionally they did things I mean they didn't have fancy filters or refrigeration or even destemmers back not that long ago even yeast uh, it was only 1850s that louis pasteur discovered that yeast were involved in the process so uh, before that they didn't even know that there was organisms involved they just thought it was magic you know um, so the fact that now you have all these designer yeasts that you can buy and from any area and everything is is um quite a modern thing and, and it's not really, um, there's nothing wrong with that and I, I don't, you know, have any lower regard for people who inoculate but it's, it's not really something that's necessary in my mind anyway. But um, in the earlier years I was much more, because of a scientific training, I was much more interested in the science about wine but yet, so I think what it brought for me to um, the table was just running good experiments, you know, always having a control and trying to keep the variables away, you know, looking at one thing at a time. And so we did a lot of experimenting, but just on basic stuff um, for many years and over, you know, multiple trials. And every time we did an experiment, it seemed like whatever we would do that interfered the least made the best wine. And, and that came from 
trying it. You know, it wasn't just um, somebody saying, don't do anything. So, okay, well, that will work. And, and so we, we tried not doing anything. We, we, we would rack every few months compared to not racking as often. And we figured, ultimately, if you can get away with all of it, the better off you are. And I, I can't not rack at all because I have to get the wine out of these barrels, you know. <laughs> but we try very hard to minimize it. And so we don't rack if we don't have to. A lot of, in fact, we're sitting in front of some 13s and these haven't been racked since, you know, they got in here in October of, of 2013. And we're in the spring of 15 now. So they've, it's never been moved. And it's also on its gross leaves. We haven't settled it after it got pressed. It came straight to barrels by gravity. So, you know, that's minor detail. I just mean, um, I, we've come to that point of, of just thinking that um, on this particular variety, um, you, you actually get more by doing less. So that I hopefully answered that question. And I guess the other thing that is kind of interesting, again, I was hired to do this new enzymatic assay originally, and so we did a lot of data taking and stuff in the early years. And I found myself not really looking at it very much um, to the point where I just thought I was, um, it's a lot of effort for not much gain. And, and the temptation is to try to use, I, I try to tell everybody now that there's nothing wrong with having too much data, or not too much data, but gather all the data you want. There's nothing wrong with that. It's what you do with the data afterwards that can be a problem. And it's not always a problem. It can save you from making bad wine sometimes. But, um, and I'm, I'm just as susceptible to it as anybody, but if I don't even have the data, I'm less likely to want to fix something, you know, and put it in the box where it has to be a certain, you know, a certain um, sort of middle of the road numbers. Um, as long as it tastes good, and um, it, it's, it's really the bottom line for me. And so I, I found over time that with too much data, I was distracted and, and focusing on the numbers instead of focusing on what the wine tasted like. So um, we're actually doing a little bit more data taking today just because Tom's more involved now and um, he doesn't have the same sort of perspective or experience that I have. And um, I suspect maybe someday he'll start backing off on some of it as well just because um, if, if he's not using it, you know. Um, but again, there's nothing wrong with having the data. And as time goes on, there's more and more tests that are available and more and more things you can look at. I mean, wine is very complex and we're still only looking at little tiny part of what's in the wine, even with all of our supposedly scientific um, methods and, and um, stuff. There's a lot of compounds that we don't know about in the wine. So, I mean, what's the difference between a $5 bottle and a $500 bottle, it's not the alcohol, it's not the pH, you know, it's, it's not the TA, those are the basic things everybody looks at, and it's, it's something that we're not necessarily testing for, so our palate is the best instrument that we can have. All right, well, you kind of uh, touched on this a little bit in the last question I asked you, but um, what is the most difficult part of growing Pinot Noir? Um, well, that's, um, that's the most difficult part. I think finding the right place for it is the most difficult part. So if you've already kind of got that down, it's really, it's not that much more difficult, I don't think. I mean, yes, it is thin-skinned and it's fragile, it has this reputation for being finicky, et cetera, et cetera. But 
um, you know, knowing all those things, it, it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, we try to keep the yields down, and we we practice good farming in the vineyard and um, take take care of it. But um, when I first came up to Oregon, one of the things I was a little worried about was the rain because you know in California it was just sort of like, oh no, it's we're going to get a drop of rain on the grapes. What are we going to do? And of course, you had to get rid of that fantasy right away because we get rain frequently. Um, 13 is an example where we just got more rain than we'd ever seen. Um, I think you've been here 23 years and you've kind of seen it all, but you know that vintage was totally out of the norm. Um, and the wines turned out pretty decent. Uh, not to say that was a vintage that we would hope for every year, but um, it's, it's um, you know, you make a different wine depending on the vintage, and, and um, I, that's another thing I was a little worried about is the variation in vintages because, you know, you're sort of assuming that consumers always want to taste the same thing. That's what all the big wineries are always striving for. Um, but now I celebrate the differences. I don't really want the same wine every year. Um, it's boring to make and it's boring to drink, you know, even though it, it, I would love to have made a little more of some of the vintages, if I got to make those every year, I'd probably be sick of it by now, you know. So um, I guess, I guess um, for me, the hardest thing maybe is just to be patient with, with Pinot Noir especially. It, it goes through phases where it doesn't taste very good and the temptation is to go fix it. You know, we're, our title is winemaker. So we feel like, uh oh, it's broken. Now we gotta go in and figure it out and make it right. First of all, I don't think we can very often. We can steer it a little, but we can't just make it. Um, so I think that has, um, I'm still learning how to be patient, but um, I think that's one of the things that, uh, even in other varieties too, um, winemaking is such an old art form that um, it's not like we're putting out widgets every week. And even brewing is, um, you know, you can make a batch of beer every week or every day if you want to start another one because, you know, your ingredients are available all year round. We only have one opportunity a year to make wine. So it's a very slow learning process and all this maturization that it takes. Um, it uh, requires patience, you know. You don't really know what you have if you're starting from bare ground for, I think, almost a decade. Because it's three years to put the plants in the ground, a year, or in our case, a year and a half to, to make the wine, and then two years to release it. So now we're five or six years into the process, and then you have to see how it ages a little bit. And, you know, you're all of a sudden you're 10 years down the road before you know if you've, if you've, if you're successful or not. So um, I think maybe that's the hardest thing is, um, in, especially in today's world where we want instant gratification and um, we want to know right now if, if something's worked. Um, I think that's one of the early lessons I learned from going to uh, Europe was that I would ask them why they did something. And a lot of times they, they wouldn't even know why. They just said, well, that's how we do it. And it's been handed down from generations. And here I was thinking, ah, oh, I gotta, I gotta find out why this is, and I want the answer right now. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out. And I think that I learned from them some patience, and that you know, usually they had a good reason for it. They may have lost why they did it that way, but there was a good reason for it. It had evolved, and it matched their site and their and their practices over time. 
And we, you know, we tried something once and it was, oh yeah, I tried, you know, I tried this Cooper last year. I didn't like them. I'm not buying them anymore. Um, but, you know, that was one data point. And so uh, different vintage, different wine, even the barrels are going to be different next year. So to uh, pretend that you're um, learning something with uh, that quick of an assessment, I think, was a mistake. So I felt like the French could have learned a little bit of our experimental nature and and we could have learned a little bit of their sort of trust in tradition um, and so I think that was really a, a, one of the one of the things that I, I got from that experience was was to be patient you know um, so is there a particular varietal or vintage um, that was most rewarding for you as a winemaker um, you know I think the real reward comes where, um, and one of the reasons I like working for a small place is when you get to see the whole circle, you know, you see the grapes, and even before the grapes, when it's just early growing season and whatnot, and then you're in New York dining with somebody at a table and you, and and you see them enjoying it. You know, I think that's, and, it, and it's not, it doesn't have to be a particular vintage. Yes, I like some vintages more than others, but any time that you sort of see that loop formed where um, you've provided something to somebody that is pleasurable and it, it just sort of makes all the work very gratifying, you know, that again, we don't, it's not rocket surgery. I don't think it's that hard to make wine, um, but it, we do provide a nice product for people and um, it's nice to be in a position where you can see the whole, the whole range of what it took to get to that point, you know. Um, often I actually am more gratified in vintages that I tend to not have much expectation for and they turn out better than I expect and vice versa. I'm disappointed sometimes when um, a vintage comes along and I just think, wow, this is, this is the best vintage ever. Um, an example might be in 99, I thought that was Oregon's best vintage ever and I thought our wines were great because I really don't like to do much to them and the grapes came in to where they really didn't need much. You know, we're always tweaking a little if we have to. Um, that vintage I probably did the least amount of work involved um, because the grapes just seemed so perfectly balanced and everything. Um, and I had such high hopes for that vintage and they are very good, but because my expectations were super high. They've only recently really been tasting that good to me, and they're still not maybe my favorite vintage, only because there's other vintages that I thought were more difficult that have turned out to be much better than I thought they would be. So it's kind of a moving question, I guess, that there's not one particular vintage or wine that has um, made me feel more gratified. I guess I just like um, I just like it when it all comes together, you know. Um, one of the things I don't like about our industry, unfortunately, is sort of the pretension. And, um, you know, when you're charged a lot of money for your wine, it's hard to avoid that. You know, we've auto automatically kind of limited a big portion of the population. They can't afford to buy our wines. And it's frustrating for me because I understand economically that we must do that. It's expensive to grow grapes here. But on the other hand, some of my favorite experiences have been in Italy, when you order a carafe of wine, you, you might know the, vint the varietal just because of where you are, but there's no guarantee of that even. 
you don't know the producer, you don't know the vintage, you don't know its score, you don't know anything else, but it's good. And you enjoy it and you're talking to your friends or family. You have another one if you like it or something different if you don't. And there's, there's no pontificating about it. It's just, it's just a beverage and it, and it makes the whole experience much more gratifying. And so I guess those moments make me gratified too when I can feel like I'm part of that sort of tradition of wine being a... Uh, icebreaker, you know. Was there a year that was most difficult for you that stands out? Um, well, technically, yes, I guess 13 might have been the most difficult, but then again, having had gone through other difficult ones, I'm now to the point where like, well, something will come out of it, you know, and so we're, we're um, I, I am, I guess, a little bit more relaxed and patient about it just because I've been through so many of them now. I've, I think, counting my California vintages, I've had 37 vintages now, something, I don't know. They're about uh, vintages to deal with. And so, you know, you, you see hot ones, you see cool ones, you see early ones, you see where you don't have enough fermenters to fit things, you, you, see, you see a lot of stuff. And um, in the end, you make some wine out of it. and. Um, Again, everybody has different tastes, and so you know it's it's easy to say that uh, that was a bad wine. But uh, usually, it's just you prefer it over another one, or don't prefer it, but somebody else will like it more. So th there's no right or wrong way to make wine, and there's no right or wrong wine. They all have a place, you know. So I guess um, 13 stands out just because it was the most recent one that would have created all this gray hair, but I already had it when that vintage came around. So. But um, that one, we certainly saw more, more rain than we ever had. So with your experience in the wine industry so far... Um, yeah, thanks for saying that, because I plan on staying <laughs> in it for a while. And you should. You've <laughs> I, just, I, have a, uh, I was thinking about return. I'm sorry, I'm getting off this subject. But um, about four or five years ago, you know, I had these little inclinations of what I was going to do next, you know, and, and then I found a wife and got married and have a two-year-old son right now. So oh, the idea of me retiring is like no longer in the cards. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yes, so yes, so far in the wine industry. <laughs> um, what are some of the most important things that you think you've learned? Well, as I mentioned, I think patience is a really important thing. I think the other sort of maxim, and I, I think most everybody making wine would agree to me, with me, is that making wine is easy, selling it can be really hard. I mean, I'm not a very good marketer, maybe that's why I feel like that's the hard part, but, um, you know, people, anyone could make wine. I'm not saying anybody could make great wine, but it, it makes it, it wants to make itself. I mean, um, it's, it's pretty easy to make wine. We, we tend to take a lot of credit for doing it, but, um, you know, it's, it's everything that you need to make wine is given to you on the grapes. You know, you've got, that's why the grapes make the best wine. You can make wine from other fruits, but usually you have to add sugar or acid or something. And you've got the right balance of those things in there, acidity and sugar. The yeasts are there. You know, you just need a container. Um, and so... Um, I'm off the track again. What was the question? <laughs> um, uh, the most important thing you've learned. Oh, oh. Yeah. Um, I guess. I guess patience. You know, and and uh, try not to take yourself too seriously. Maybe. 
Um, all right. Well, is there anything that we've forgotten or that you'd like to share? Probably, but I can't think of it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't. I can't think of anything else. I guess I just. Uh, I just really feel grateful to have landed here um, when I landed here, and um, it's it's it is a really really great career, even though we don't save lives. Um, the people are wonderful and it's 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 um you know it's an agricultural product so you're really tied to the seasons and to the ground and yet it there's some science involved and yet and and there's you know it's it's just a really it's hard to describe it it's just i can't imagine um having to work in a real job <laughs> you know <laughs> it's it's just uh it's very gratifying so uh thank you for letting me share my story Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.